0: Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as twenty five cents per episode. That's just one dollar per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi,
1: this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature Podcast. Dr. Mary Youssef is Associate Professor of Arabic Literature in the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Studies at Binghamton University. Her research area areas include modern and contemporary Arabic literature, postcolonial studies, world literature, genre studies, migration studies, gender studies, Arab women's writing, and African literature. She is currently working on a new book, Rethinking Difference, The Emergence of a New Consciousness in the Contemporary Egyptian Novel. Dr. Youssef describes a new development among contemporary Egyptian writers who present Egyptian society as fundamentally heterogeneous, consisting of several diverse groups that undermine commonly held assumptions about national identity. Richard and I reflect on Dr. Yusuf's ideas as they relate to the biblical tradition, especially her thesis on the function of the other in Arabic literature. The discussion leads to some surprising and helpful parallels between the two genres.
0: You're listening to the Bible as Literature.
1: Hi, this is Father Mark Wulos. And this
2: is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to episode 51 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are very excited to have Dr. Mary Youssef of the University of Binghamton here with us this week. Dr. Yusuf is a professor of Arabic literature and I remember the first time I had the opportunity to hear about her dissertation and about her own view of Arabic literature and its importance for the modern literary scene but she was talking about this concept of the other and I remember thinking this is interesting it sounds in a way very scriptural.
2: In scripture we have always this discussion about the other. so for example with the Ten Commandments so be kind to the outsider because you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Or if we look at the New Testament, the fact that Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem and was cursed on the outside, and there is this emphasis on the outsider, and that the other is always someone that you have to focus on. The ones who are marginalized in society, like foreigners, widows, orphans. Scripture puts so much emphasis on this. And the ones that he criticizes are the ones who are the most inside of anybody, the kings and the prophets and the priests who are on the inside. And so the fact that the criticism goes against the insider, that the insider must spend more time and more effort to make sure that they are taking care of the outsider it creates an important dynamic within scripture and i know that you study this within literature so you know i was hoping dr yusuf to hear more about your thesis and any examples you have that would help us understand that in the context of arabic literature
0: thank you for introducing me and i'm really happy to be here and part of this podcast I'm talking about my thesis or my dissertation and my primary research I am looking into the representation of multiple groups in Arabic literature, especially the contemporary Egyptian novel. What I'm trying to look at is the undertakings of contemporary writers. Are they preoccupied with the other, with the multiplicities we find in the Arabic the Egyptian population? That's what I tried to look at. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, I found that there is quite a body of Arabic novels or Egyptian novels that focus on the depiction of others or of marginal groups in Egypt. Examples of these texts are texts that depict the Nubian Egyptians. Examples of Siwan Egyptians, which is an ethnic group that lives in the Western Desert in oasis in Siwa Oasis.
2: And the Nubians are the ones from the south.
0: The Nubians are the ones from the south. Which is actually
1: Upper Egypt for people listening. It's counterintuitive, but the south of Egypt on the map is called Upper Egypt in Egyptian literature and Yeah, history. because it's
0: a higher land, because this is where the Nile streams from Africa. So it's a higher land. So that's why it's Upper Egypt versus Lower Egypt, which is going to be in the north and right. closer to the Mediterranean.
2: Egypt flows downhill.
0: And so is the Nile River. Usually when people think of Egypt, they think of a larger group of population, which is Arab Muslim population but there are so many other groups that could be muslim could be arab or could really problematize the word arab so if we talk about the berber group we find that they speak tamazight a different language from arabic and if we talk about nubians they have their own indigenous languages which is knus but both of them are Muslim groups. Islam, you would think of just one group, but actually there are multiple practices and multiple groups that started to practice Islam and convert to Islam and therefore have, you know, different ways of doing this. It's
2: easy for us to think of Egypt as an Arab country and Muslim country. A lot of our listeners probably are familiar with the Copts there, so they realize that there is a significant minority of Arabic-speaking Christians. Mm -hmm. But then to think that there are Arabic-speaking Christians and non-Arabic-speaking Muslims and multiple groups of Muslims, dark-skinned Muslims in the south. Some of them speak Arabic, a different dialect of Arabic. Some of them speak an entirely different language. In the west, you have lighter-skinned Amazigh who speak a completely different language, Mm -hmm. but are Muslim. Within Egypt itself, the understanding of Islam What it even means to be a Muslim is multifaceted. I think what you're doing is really helping us understand that a country that we think of as homogenous, and even many Egyptians think of as homogenous, you're showing in your own research how there are many Egyptians who recognize the complexity of the society that's there. What struck me on Sunday when you gave your lecture at St. Elizabeth, what struck me is
1: that American imperialism which tries to force everyone to dress a certain way, to speak English, you know, the way that, especially in the 50s, they suppressed any kind of diversity of language in this country. What's striking is that, in a way, in the Arab world, they're trying to do the same thing. I mean, that's what I picked up on when you are talking about this counter movement among the authors, right? Mm -hmm. Where's this pressure coming from to view Egypt as a monolith, as a Muslim country? or whatever, or to compete, to say, no, it's a Coptic country. Very similar to Zionism, actually, these competing ideologies. What's going on yeah, there?
0: It's not only religious, like monolithically religious, or one religion, or a single race, a single ethnicity, a single language, a single affiliation. This is not true at all and creates problems. But I think it's the emergence of the idea of nationalism. It's the nation-state that always oppresses the diversity within its population. The more we're all alike, the more we all think alike, happier we're going to be, the nation is going to be stable. But this is absolutely mythical. We are diverse, and Egypt has always been diverse, and any place will be diverse. That's natural. The thing is, how are we going to express this diversity in literature? So these writers are visionaries. They are trying to bring this difference to the forefront. While the state is trying to oppress it, they are trying to do something else. So when we see the revolution, what I would call the uprising in 2011, it was not a big shock. These writers have been working on this and bringing this diversity and this plethora of voices. This tendency among contemporary Egyptian writers to bring this diversity is to undermine and subvert the policies of the state. So if the state marginalizes a certain racial group or a certain ethnic group, because they think that they problematize this kind of imagined homogeneity because it's only imagined, it's only a myth, it cannot be a true reality.
2: I find it fascinating that you have people who would on the surface be the majority in Egypt. You have male Arabic-speaking Muslims Mm -hmm. who are interested in writing from the point of view of Nubians, or from a Christian point of view, or from even a woman's point of view, and how fascinating that is, and that they then perceive themselves as marginal because they're trying to see something from the non-standard point of view. Mm -hmm. So they marginalize themselves in order to identify more with these marginal groups. And in this way, I think there's something that parallels with scripture and that the call for everyone to try to identify more with those marginal people. And it's interesting, it's coming from a Muslim majority. We don't have Christians who are trying to see things from a Muslim point of view or Christians trying to see things from a Nubian point of view Mm -hmm. or something like this. Mm -hmm. We don't see it. It's coming from the center moving out. And I think this is an important movement that we see in scripture. And we know that scripture destabilizes Mm -hmm. by making that movement. And it undermines, like I said, it undermines the king and it undermines the priest Mm -hmm. when it tries to make this movement happen. God actually faces you
1: as the other, and it's always the other who is the most dangerous for you or the most uncomfortable for you. I want to say, out of Egypt have I called my son, but since we have Dr. Yusuf here, I'm going to say, out of Egypt have I called my daughter to bring this counter-message. So in a way, only a Muslim, if you're thinking in scriptural terms, could say it to a Christian, only a man could say it to a woman or vice versa. One point that I want to throw out for discussion or comment, when Westerners hear a Near Eastern scholar, an Arab scholar, an Egyptian scholar like Dr. Yusuf talking about literature and it sounds to their ear progressive, they immediately assume, oh, finally, it's working all of our effort to spread democracy has finally touched egypt and now suddenly the egyptians are having an awakening now it popped in my head these silly ideas about progress and all of this nonsense it popped in my head because scripture was written in the levant and now you have in the levant and in north africa again right the whole region the fertile crescent again you have writers rediscovering a literary mechanism that goes back not centuries But thousands of years. So I just want to point out that what we call progress in the West is still feeding off the scraps from the Father's table from the ancient Near East. Anyways, I had to say that, Mary, for our people.
0: I completely agree with your viewpoint. You know, we've always seen writers as the intellectuals, the people who are the guards of the culture, the people who are trying to voice other people's concerns. But it's not really confined to certain people voicing other people who are incapable of voicing their own concerns because of illiteracy, because of being marginal. There was a counter-movement called a minority literature.
2: There's minorities writing about themselves. Yeah, the
0: minorities writing about themselves. Kafka, when he wrote about his experience writing in German, which is not his primary language, which was Yiddish, but how he appropriated German and made it serve his own experience, his own minority experience. What is happening now is that we're seeing, we're combining the two perspectives. So when you look at the depiction of the marginal experience, I look into texts that are written by Nubians and texts that depict Nubians by mainstream writers and really comparing the two texts. And here is the ethical question. Do I really need to be a minority? Am I the sole sole authority to tell my story? Or can anybody else... Go and learn about me, learn about me in an ethical way, in a very dynamic way. Not learn about me in isolation and then feel like he or she can inform. No, it's through the interactions, through experience. It's through really, really adopting other ways of life and then taking this experience and giving it to others.
1: What's striking, what really strikes me about what you're talking about, and you, again, you highlighted this in your talk on Sunday. You don't have to be a woman to be an expert on the experience of women. You don't. You don't have to be a woman to identify personally with their experience. I mean, this is what is happening in Arabic literature, what you're describing, this phenomenon. And this, to me, is very correct. And I think it's a huge problem among Western intellectuals, because now suddenly, in order to speak about women's issues or the issues in the Black community or issues in the Muslim community, you have to be from that community. But that is really a tribalistic mentality that's self-defeating. Because the only way you grow is if there's catalyst acting from the outside and you're interacting with the outside, right? So this is what the New Testament is doing. It's saying to tribal communities, you want to survive by being inward looking. But in so doing, you become the very thing you fear because you're not interacting with the other.
0: Combining the two perspectives this person who took upon themselves the burden of the other and who interacted with the other came out of that experience as they have more than one consciousness. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're all shaped by our upbringing. We're all shaped by our time, by our history, by our social and historical context. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we're not going to go and venture and know whoever and whatever surrounds us. Nobody needs to be comfortable and claim that they can only be comfortable in their own upbringing, in their own background.
2: Paul has this tension in mind because he's got a dual role. Among Romans, he's marginal because he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. But within the church, he's central because he's not a Gentile. So within Judaism, he's central, but within the greater world, he's marginal. It's kind of like Wharf on Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. Is he with the humans? Is he not? Is he a Klingon? Is he not? And that's the thing, like Worf, you're always on the border of being a traitor from both sides. The humans can say, oh, you're too Klingon to be one of us. And the Klingons can say, you're too human. You're too human to be one of us. And Paul has to deal with this when he says, I have my pedigree as a Jew. I'm a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. And he goes through the whole thing. He says, but I count it all as. Skibola. So what he does is he takes his central position and marginalizes himself. But then when he is in act being accused, he's saying, but I'm a Roman citizen. Mm-hmm. And they go and they have to check his papers and realize that actually this is legitimate because they're assuming that because he's a Jew, he's an outsider. So he is speaking from a dual point of view. And I think that the lens that you bring from looking at modern literature actually made me understand Paul as a biblical character in a better way, that he sociologically occupies these two spots simultaneously. He's inside nowhere, he's outside everywhere.
0: Yeah, that is actually fascinating because one of the novels I work on is called Wahat al ghurub or The Sunset Oasis, and it's by an Egyptian writer called Bahat Tahir. The novel depicts the Amazigh population in Siwa Oasis in Western Desert at the turn of the 20th century where there was remnants of, the, of course, the Circassians still ruling Egypt also we had British colonial presence. So there was this Egyptian officer who goes with his Irish wife, interestingly, that he meets on a Nile cruise and he takes her to the oasis. And they both go and it's kind of an assignment, it's kind of an exile. So he is part of the multiple main characters. The uh, literary technique that Bahat Tahir uses is really fascinating because he uses stream-of-consciousness technique So we hear the private experience that only the narrator who's telling us about these multiple characters can really access. We can hear all the soliloquies of the officer. We hear interior monologues of his wife. Alexander the Great gets invoked somehow and we hear his experience of combining worlds of Europeans and Asians and all of this kind of imperial project. And we see also The Berber, we find interestingly, even though Egyptians or the colonial administration sees them as a homogenous group, we find that they have a feud themselves and they have disagreements. They see themselves as Easterners and Westerners and a lot of conflict arises. So we see one of them also having his own interior monologues and we get into their depths and their psychology And we see all of these people, and they're all trying to interact with one another.
2: Ghurub, can that also be a reference to Gharib, the stranger? Yes,
0: absolutely. Ghurub means sunset.
2: It means sunset and west, but also Gharib means foreigner or outsider.
0: Yes, because it goes to the margin, it's the end of things.
2: An oasis of foreigners is what it is, where all the foreigners come together. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. I mean, what's interesting to me, it's scriptural. It's scriptural on two levels.
1: One, because of the Semitic wordplay that Dr. Benton just called out. But two, because this oasis, this place, it's eclectic. Everybody goes there, and that's the place where you find life. Mm-hmm. That's Jerusalem. That is Zion, not a piece of real estate that the Americans and the Russians and the Europeans are divvying up to see who can control the oil in the Middle East. Yeah. right. It's a place, in Scripture they would say, a place in the heavens.
2: When Jacob goes to the well, one of the ways that they dealt with water supply is they put a stone over the well that's too heavy for a single person to lift. So you always had to have an agreement, implicitly, about when you were going to drink from the well. And so you actually have to bring people together to open it up so that the livestock can drink. I believe in Genesis, it's outside of the land where they have to meet. Right, because Genesis is anti-civilization, right? Anti-center. Anti-center, because the land belongs
1: to God and you dwell in the land.
0: Absolutely. What is really interesting about this narrative technique is that you don't have one single authority. They're all telling the story of their experience in the oasis. So there is no correct point of view. They're all mingling and they're all interacting. And we get to see their own struggles, bringing their own differences. And each of them is so diverse, even between the officer and his wife and how the oasis brought them much closer to one Mm. another. It's a fascinating technique that always motivates me to keep working on this project.
1: And of course, in life, and this is so beautifully depicted in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where there is a waterhole and you have two groups two tribes come together, and they're staring at each other from across the waterhole. They look at the water, they look at each other, and then on one side, someone picks up a stick. And of course, this is the birth of technology, the birth of things made by the hand of men. He then realizes that he has a tool, and he can use it to hit the other, and they fight over the waterhole. So the oasis is a very raw metaphor in this sense, because as much as human beings have to cooperate in order to find life, which is your point from Genesis the risk is always there of conflict.
2: Well, because we see in Hosea that the human being is always concerned and worried that they're going to lose out on their agricultural produce and their riches. So therefore, the source of conflict and the source of idolatry is holding up around your resources and making sure you own the resources. It's not about owning it. It's about someone else not owning it, that right. it belongs to you. This is the point of ownership, and this is the primary sin And Hosea and the prophets, you want to be in control. And this is what it means to be in the center is to want to be in control. And this is a problem. And so this movement going out to the Oasis and even in the Quran, you see this, where moving out away from the centers is considered more sane. In Exodus, moving out into the wilderness, it's just you and God. And it's the ideal situation and geography in scripture. In Islam, you have the same thing. You know, the corruption comes from the city, the polytheism and all this. And so Muhammad has to go into retreat into the wilderness in order to purify himself. Israel was called a people, Israel, in the wilderness. This makes no
1: sense. The whole movement of worldly Zionism, and I'm speaking in larger terms here than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because when the Copts talk about being the true Egyptians, it's the same insidious ideology. Anytime a group claims to be the true anything that controls the true anything, it leads to suffering. But this is the natural tendency of the human mind. I mean, I just heard kids on the radio. Now my kids are listening to pop music, so I'm stuck listening to this stuff on the radio now. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. But we have a good time. Anyways. I heard a young woman who was a musician, who lived on the streets in Brooklyn and in New York and so forth, complaining that white kids from the suburb were speaking authoritatively about rap music. What's the problem? It's all racism. It's a multifaceted, multidimensional kind of racism that isn't captured by the word racism. I like the discussion of the other as you lay out in your thesis. But why couldn't someone from the planet Mars who comes to Earth and listens to rap music suddenly become an expert in that genre and talk that way? Why not? It's an illusion. This idea of you having to be of a certain group to have a certain experience in order to speak authoritatively is anti-intellectual. I mean the best advice on marriage ever put to paper outside of scripture is by John Chrysostom, who was celibate.
2: It proves your point. I think people are nervous though also because a lot of times you know you look at the birth of anthropology for example and you had Westerners going into quote exotic unquote cultures to describe them for the British crown and that information was used to caricature those people and ultimately to subjugate them. So there can be a danger when there's subjugation, when the motives are questionable. Is it ethical if I try to write Beloved by Toni Morrison, if I try to write it from an oppressed black woman's point of view, is it okay for me to write a book about that? Is that acceptable? I think it's necessary. I take a stand on this because I think that's how scripture is
1: written. We joke that Luke must have been written by a woman because it's so anti-male authority. But it doesn't have to be the case. I don't believe that factual knowledge is ever self-righteous, no matter who speaks it, because it's the knowledge for me that's the reference. I do think that if someone is writing about someone else's experience in order to subjugate them, we're not dealing with knowledge. We're dealing with distortions and lies. And power. And so that might be the way to draw the line that you're talking about, Dr. And I think
2: the fact that this commandment is repeated so many times in scripture shows that it's the challenge that the human being must undergo. And it's a lifelong challenge. If I start to understand the marginal person, I haven't completely understood. And in fact, I'm always going to be central looking out. I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Christian male. I'm always going to be in the center. I travel through the world. I'm always at the center of everything because of all these sociological influences. So what do I do then to try to understand the Somali, Mm -hmm. the Somali woman even? How do I try to understand that point of view? Many forces in the culture would say, it is not valid for me to try to understand that point of view. You will never understand this point of view. However, it's still imperative to me because of scripture to force myself to try to understand that point of view.
1: I've learned about Arabic culture from you.
2: So I think that we overrate tribal experience.
1: We overrate identity experience. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all people.
0: You stop wanting to learn about others and know others, know them and understand them when you're too comfortable. This is the beginning of self-righteousness. But when you always adopt this critical position, you become restless. You always stand in this position and look at yourself and look at the people around you. And then you change that position all the time. So you keep moving and you stay and remain restless because you cannot be static. And neither will the other be? They will not be static. They will always be dynamic. So this kind of continuous change that we always experience, the self does not remain static and neither will the other be. So is it really acceptable that we depict other people? We do not claim that we're representing them. We are trying to present their human experience because eventually it's all a human experience. This background, these you know, circumstances that made that person marginal, I will find things to relate to. I would absolutely find a way to relate to that person because I have been myself marginalized. In familial relations, in the workplace, it could be because of a racial problem, it could be because of a gender problem, it could be because of you know multiple uh, ways of uh, marginalizing the other political stance that could be also marginalized. There is a novel that was recently published called Azazil by a writer called Yusuf Zidane. Yusuf Zidane is a historian and a religious studies scholar who wrote about fifth century Egypt. The novel depicts a monk who is originally from South Egypt, from Akhmim, and who goes to Alexandria. And he stays there for a while, and he meets a woman there who's a Greek woman. And then he moves to Jerusalem, and he eventually ends up somewhere close to Antioch. Talking about his experience and his journey all the way from the South, he witnesses a lot of the religious schisms and discourses and othering of people at the beginning of early Christendom. When that novel was published and because of how the writer depicted the monk who was very open and he had some type of worldly experiences, it made a lot of people reacted and said, you know, why would you write about that? Why would you depict a monk who can have worldly inclinations, as in like having relations with women or doing this and that? People opposed that novel and they wanted to ban it. But you know, the writer says, I am a creative writer. Why do you want to put a restriction on creative writing? Can only Christians write creatively about their history? Or can other people do that too? To try to talk about the restrictions and the monopolies of religious programs. It could be talking to any religious program at any time. We have multiple religious programs. These religious programs can be very restrictive and very exclusive of others. I'm talking about the reaction of people to certain literature that depict the other or depict them, and then they claim to be the sole authority of that history or that literature.
1: Listening to this conversation, having the honor of being able to speak with you today, Dr. Youssef. I know I enjoyed it very much. I'm sure you feel the same way, Richard. The one thing that really jumps out at me is the question of how human beings learn. This podcast is focused on literature. It's focused on education and learning and growing. And I think we've both discovered in our own ministries, Richard, that the best way to learn is to write and to teach. So how else would a Muslim grow to understand the experience of a Coptic monk? What other way could he approach this challenge except to write about a Coptic monk, to explore the humanity of a Coptic monk, to explore his flaws for the Christian? How else could they learn about the Muslims except to actually study and write and teach and express themselves? I mean, to me, this is so obvious. And that, in a way, we bolster racism and we bolster the boundaries that are already established between communities when we push back and say, who are you to write about me? I think that these writers and what you're describing is really important. I think the future of the Middle East rests in their hands. And I think there's much that intellectuals in the West could learn from what they're doing. So I really want to encourage you to continue your work. We're so thankful. That you're on this track, and I hope this isn't the last time we have you on the podcast. Thank you so very
2: much. It's been a wonderful time. Fantastic, fantastic. Thank you. Happy New Year. Take care. Happy New Year. Thank you.
0: You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.